Hey everyone, welcome to the Palladium Podcast, episode 36. I'm Ash Milton, managing editor at Palladium Magazine. Today I'm talking with Natalia Dashan and Isaac Wilkes. Natalia is an associate editor at Palladium Magazine, and she's a Yale graduate who has written for us previously. Her article uh, was about her Yale experience and the way in which status games were played at the university. It was called The Real Problem at Yale is Not Free Speech. Isaac has also been a Palladium writer. He's an undergrad at Yale studying political science. His piece is called It's Time to Build for Good and was a response to Mark Anderson's piece uh, on, on the importance of building. Natalia and Isaac, welcome to the podcast. I think it's the first time for both of you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, Ash. Yeah, and uh, anyway, I'm really glad we're getting this chance to chat. Um, obviously, at Palladium, we've had a lot of discussion about this idea of American elites and given you both have come out of the Ivy League experience and have written about it, have reflected pretty extensively in your writing and your social media activity on the nature and the status of American elites, I, I think this is going to be an interesting discussion. Um, I basically want to start off, you know, when you guys were going to Yale uh, and, and, you know, based on the other universities you were applying to, there is, I'm sure, something that you saw yourself coming out of it as some set of goals or had or some vision you were working toward to. I'm interested to hear what that was, what drove you to go through that experience and whether you think you achieved it. Uh, Natalia, why don't you start us off? The Ivy League schools always had this amazing mystique about them, how that's the place where all the really rich people go. That's the place where even if you are kind of a nobody, getting an Ivy League degree um, gives you a sort of perspective and an education that puts you in a more refined, more intellectual class. So when I was applying, I actually had in the back of my mind this idea of being an educated person, this idea of being a public intellectual. And uh, so Yale was my favorite school because it had that ethos more than any of the other schools, more so than Harvard, more so than Princeton. Um, at our admission days, I remember we had wine tastings just for all of the parents and neither Harvard or Princeton had that. And it was this sophisticated, beautiful, classy ethos that to me resembled what what could be and what better and the best looks like and for me it was it wasn't a call to a job or to a particular career path and one of my struggles at Yale has been figuring out what my major should be and figuring out internships and what what I could even do afterwards. But I saw, I wanted to go. It was almost, it was a call to adventure of this is where these awesome people go to school. I want to be one of these awesome people. I want to go. You talked in your piece about how surprised you were. Um, and, you know, the piece opens with you interacting with a friend of yours who you thought for the longest time was broke and like legitimately poor. Um, not just poor in, in, in a sort of relative sense, but actually poor, broke. Uh, and you discovered he had a trust fund. And 
I'm interested to hear, because it sounds like you weren't thinking of a particular career path as such. Did you think of it as you were trying to join a certain class of people? Yeah, absolutely. I remember my freshman year, um, a guy who I really respected came up to me and said, freshman year, your number one job is to make as many friends as possible, because those are friends that are going to help you with your classes sophomore, junior, senior year. Those are the friends that are going to be telling you about all the parties that are going on when you're lonely. And I, I really took that advice to heart, where I am here to make connections. I am here to get the Yale experience. I am here to take these really fancy, you know, 15-person seminars where we're in this wooden room around this wooden desk with this prestigious professor. And my goal while I was at Yale was really to kind of milk Yale for all of these really almost surreal experiences now that I look back at them. Well, and that's, um, I think, something I'd love to get into as we go forward in the discussion. For anyone looking at the role of Ivy Leagues in America and of this level of the academy in America, I think there is an assumption that the goal here is to create um, essentially the American elite. And at this point where these universities are not just for Americans, these are the top universities in the world. People from uh, every continent on earth strive to go to these universities. And so they're creating an elite that is global in nature, or at least that's the way people think of it. Um, so I think one of the points of discussion we'll want to go on is, does it actually do that? Does it see itself as doing this? Before that, though, uh, Isaac, I, I'd like to hear your answer as well. What caused you to make the investment of going through the Yale experience? Yeah, I mean, my sort of experience is actually much different than that. I, in high school, didn't really have sort of developed ideas of, of class or uh, any type of like social advancement. Um, I'd always been, you know, definitely like more of an autodidact. So I sort of really usually despised like advancing myself in classes and sort of, um, you know, high school meritocracy. I, I sort of held myself aloof from it because I, you know, didn't think it was worth my time. You know, I, I you know, kind of thought, um, thought of myself as something of like a, an anti-elitist, which is, I guess, ironic considering where I ended up. But I really applied on a whim. Um, I, you know, I remember there was a sort of group of like, um, you know, very sort of leadership oriented kids we're all suddenly getting into Yale and, you know, around a month before the deadline, I decided to just throw my hat in the ring. Um, mm -hmm. So it was from a position of sort of ambivalence, but there was definitely some uh, unconscious sort of struck like um, status imperatives there, probably. Yeah. Well, and uh, the the question of whether an autodidact can function in this sort of environment will also be interesting. Like, in a sense, the problem with trying to get your own education is that you kind of already know what you need to learn. But one would think that uh, you know there's sort of a catch twenty two there. You already need to know what you'll need in future. And the point of a good teacher, um, or, or or especially a master and apprenticeship relationship, is that that person should know what you will need and train you in those things. And so I think we'll also want to discuss um, whether this academic system is still achieving that or not. Like I, I'd be interested to hear coming out uh, or, or, you know, I, I know you're still an undergrad. Do you think coming out, you'll have achieved the things you look to do going in? 
I I don't think so. I mean, you know, I I did, you know, go in with um, not much of a plan. But that said, you know, I, I wanted something of an education. I mean, maybe it was a little naive in that my highest sort of hopes were educational. Um, but I, you know, found it um, very sort of disorienting where there's this, you know, fantastic, like diversity on paper of, of courses. And, um, you know, there's really no strong effort made to kind of guide um, an undergrad who doesn't have a kind of set pre-professional track. Um, and, you know, so I, after a couple semesters of sort of, you know, flailing around, um, I, you know, got better at choosing courses, but I, I ultimately concluded, you know, after my first year that I wasn't really going to be able to build you know, like a, a foundational liberal arts education, uh, just by sort of cobbling together um, things from from different departments to, you know, um, and it was very, very, you know, disorienting and um, very disheartening to sort of find myself, you know. Yeah. And I think that, you know, Ivy Leagues aside, that seems true across a lot of universities. But like, what was the mechanism of this? Is, is it that the the masters, so to speak, were not present? Like you couldn't form these kinds of apprenticeship relationships? I mean, I don't want to sell it short. Like you definitely can. You know, there are still fantastic individual courses you can take. But the problem is, you know, if you really strike gold and, you know, you find a course that really satisfies, you know, a lot of the foundational, you know, works in, um, you know, let's say a certain field of political theory. Um, and, you know, by the end of the semester, you can become quite close with the professor and you're like, you know, you go to office hours and you're like, oh man, like this was great, you know, what's next? And they're like, well, unfortunately, this is, you know, all we have in this uh, department right now. And, you know, and it's just sort of very kind of um, a sort of sporadic, like professor by professor basis, you know, with the fact that there's no kind of unified structure overall. So Natalia, like in addition to your own experience, I know you spent a lot of time working with uh, people going through uh, various elite universities um, I'm interested to hear, you know, maybe following up on this, if one is wanting to take the place or, or, or join the ranks, let's say, of being a great intellectual or a great statesman or, um, you know, uh, someone who's producing culture and knowledge, how many people at this point even have this dream? And even if they have the dream, is it possible to do this? Oh, that's a very interesting question. The number of people I know at Yale who maybe, uh, it would be a handful. It would be probably less than 20 that I'm personally aware of. And I, I'm including in that 20 people who are climbing traditional hierarchies. For example, people who are getting journalism jobs at, at the New York Times or people who are, are working for the New Yorker. Um, so people who are, or, or people who are working at think tanks. So this includes people who are forging their own path and creating their own identity and also climbing these um, hierarchies in traditional institutions of public leadership and public thought. So including all of those people, um, I would say to be very liberally, probably less than 50. Less than 50 people. Yeah, from that I know from Yale. Um, and then, of course, there's maybe lots of people who, who I don't know. But I found it to be 
a, a surprisingly small number. You know, if you look at the 20th century, a lot of these institutions that built important networks in government, networks in culture, there seem to be sort of these master-apprentice relationships at play. Um, you know, I, I'm personally, I've been reading recently Carol Quigley, who's one of the great American historians of the 20th century. And uh, he taught people who were going into the civil service. And when you read his books, there are these prefaces from people who considered him a great teacher of theirs and took his example as a historian, sure, but um, as maybe a student of looking at how human societies function and took that into their careers in the civil service. And to this day, when people think of what a governing class is supposed to be, I think that's still that image is probably still there. But it sounds like the actual pathways to creating that kind of succession. Like, I, I wonder if you would be able to find the, the, the successor or the family tree of Quigley today in the same way. And like what the quality of those people would be now. Um, Isaac, like, I'd be interested to hear from you people, people who you'd be reading about in the 20th century. Do you think that you can find their successors in these halls or these institutions now? I mean, to be blunt, like I'm, I'm pretty bearish on, on that. Um, I think, you know, just because of the fact that, um, you know, the sort of elite universities mirror the kind of broader sclerosis and, um, you know, non-functionality of, uh, the like broader governing structure. I think, you know, um, it's, it's fairly bleak just as a function of the, the current landscape. Um, there's also some pretty gaping, like specific succession failures that I can point to. Um, Jonathan Spence, for example, he was, um, a professor of, um, you know, Chinese civilization at Yale. He taught for decades, this foundational course, um, on China. Uh, that's now a book, um, I think it's called in search of modern China. Uh, it's very long, but basically, um, you know, he was, he was lauded by, by students for years and, um, you know, really just. Um, provided this like very key sort of, you know, foundational overview of like Chinese civilization and sort of the modern Chinese, uh, you know, situation. Um, and, uh, you know, he left in, I think, 09 and it just hasn't been, you know, uh, like filled. There, there is really no like module you can take as an undergrad um, at Yale if you want to really get a deep education into, you know, Chinese civilization. Um, so it makes me kind of question a lot of the broader um, dynamics at play there where if something, you know, that key, especially considering, you know, the, the strategic, uh, landscape globally right now with, with, um, you know, the, the challenge to China that seems, or the challenge that, that China presents, um, just seems to be totally unmet in these, you know, elite, uh, circles. So overall pessimistic. Yeah. So it, it seems clear that like these master apprenticeship relationships are at least like extremely difficult to build right now. You're someone who wants to go into, uh, I, I believe, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but China analysis, um, being able to build up a deep skill set on how America can manage this relationship, this new situation um, of like a superpower rivalry, which after a generation, uh, and this, this is why this is important, 
a generation has passed since the fall of the Soviet Union. The people who knew how to manage a superpower rivalry are at the very least aged. In 30 years, there hasn't been political pressure for them to create successors because America did not need people managing a superpower rivalry. How would you, you know, give, like, how would you strategize then to bootstrap a replacement if you're not just given a path toward master apprenticeships? Do you think you can do this in the university? Well, I think uh, there's, there is, of course, an extent to which you can within the university, right? Like, you know, there will always be some professors who you could build a relationship with and sort of dive deeper into research topics on your own. Um, but, you know, I think um, and, you know, my answer to this is like my answer to many sort of areas of knowledge in general, where the highest value thing I've been able to do is, um, you know, build Twitter connections. And, you know, like a lot of these sort of um, knowledge generation and sort of intellectual networks that I, that I see um, are, you know, just people who I know from Twitter and who can point me to certain things, um, you know, readings and, and, and things like that. Um, so I think, you know, I don't think, you know, this is a sustainable, you know, sort of like model. I think um, like being an autodidact is, is you know, good, but um, to really transfer these crucial like nodes of, of implicit knowledge surrounding, you know, how do you manage great power conflict or how do you really you know, do statesmanship or diplomacy, I think, um, quite hard within uh, the university to do so right now. Yeah. You wrote uh, in your piece, it's time to build for good about the importance of needing some kind of substantive vision that actually guides what thing, you know, d development and these sorts of things look like. Okay, we have, we know that this vision is important. Do you see anyone filling the gap then? I mean, not, not quite, you know, I think, the, you know, the, the problem is, you know, not simply that, oh, we need to sort of conjure up a positive vision of the good, right? Um, I, you know, I don't think it's quite that. I think it's just a much more foundational problem where, you know, we've sort of, we aren't really making even a basic attempt at sort of telling students, you are here at this university to do this, right? There's sort of these invocations of, of global leadership or something, but, you know, they're, they're wooden and nobody really believes them. And, you know, if if you don't tell a bunch of, you know, really precocious, like meritocratic youth that like, you know, OK, you're here and, you know, what you're going to do is we need a um, we need to retrain the civil service to sort of manage great power conflict. Right. If you don't tell them that, um, you know, they, they they pretty much just graft on to the sort of existing modes of advance and sort of pre-professional mores that have pretty much, I think, taken over much of the research university. You know, a, a great example of this is like my erstwhile major that I since dropped uh, is called global affairs. And it's very competitive at, at the school. But what it boils down to is essentially as a senior, instead of doing a thesis, it, it matches you with some type of institution, usually an NGO uh, to do kind of consulting work for it. Um, so it's really there's, a, you know, e even more so than like, like, yes, we're, we're, we're lacking a vision, but it's also sort of the the preconditions for even having a coherent vision or, you know, a teleology in the first place are, are pretty much like implicitly rejected. This is pretty crazy for me. The more I'm having this conversation, the more the ridiculousness and surrealism of this is sort of falling for me. You have a bunch of high schoolers and these high schoolers in, in most American schools, 
there's this whole trope that they're not taught anything useful with the assumption that they'll either learn the actual useful things from their parents or on their own as autodidacts. If, if you need a, if you need, if, if there's something you need to know, it'll come to you at some point. So we have this thing where high schoolers aren't taught, they're taught a lot of things, but they're not exactly taught how to navigate society or how to make money or how to be, how, how to hashtag adulting. Um, and, but they are taught that you should don't get pregnant, don't do drugs, go to college. And then they go to college and at in college they're treated as okay you guys are adults and you guys get to do whatever you want and design your own curriculum and protest whatever you want and they are given this full adult status once they enter college it's like okay you know you know what's best for you you know what you want and it's a very hands off approach and i think this I have a hypothesis that this is what accounts to the very high depression and anxiety rate among college students, where they don't know where they're, they're going, they don't know where they've been, and they have all these expectations placed upon them. And these these expectations aren't even spelled out. It's They're supposed to be productive members of society, but then you look around at the job offerings and okay, I'm a liberal arts major, do I work at this marketing firm and not make any money for many years and live in a big city and use my entire paycheck just to pay for rent and to pay for credit card? And that's assuming you don't have a student loan. Do I go work in consulting and just, you know, hashtag selling out to make a, try to make a lot of money? Mm. Do I try to forge my own path as an entrepreneur? A lot of the entrepreneur stuff entrepreneurship stuff is ideological but a lot of it is also people have been realizing the trade-offs in these existing institutions aren't worth it it's like okay i'm working at a media company and media companies are notoriously uh they, they can be notoriously unpleasant to, to work for where there isn't a lot of upward mobility within the same company you usually change companies in order to get a promotion and the, the pay isn't good. And there's a high replaceability rate. And people are realizing these are not great trade-offs if you actually want to live a good life. And so they end up dropping out of these institutions. They end up dropping out of the workforce. The amount of people I know from good colleges who aren't working in fields they feel they have expertise in or feel like they are climbing up is so many people and that's crazy and like isaac said we have this whole geopolitical superpower dynamic where people really should be on their a-game and they're not and no one's telling them how to do that yeah it's like they should be getting recruited into uh the the major institutions of the american system but instead they're getting recruited to do like product management uh, at for a financial transactions app or something like this. Um, it's a very weird dynamic. I don't, you know, Natalia, you and I have discussed before this phenomenon um, of job fairs at Ivy Leagues where uh, you kind of have the same companies showing up for 
all the different departments and majors. And so there's this high pressure intensity um, on internships and for people looking at their next jobs and people even start to have a very diminished view of what's possible for them. You know, they have to work at McKinsey or at JP Morgan or at something else in a list of maybe the 25 or 30 biggest companies in America. Uh, and as a result, there's a downward pressure mentally and financially because everyone's competing for those same slots. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's kind of crazy. It's a perfect example of what happens when you have a power void. If the institutions aren't set forth a vision of what the students should be doing, somebody else comes in and does that. And right now, those people are these giant companies. You know, you have people at Yale just literally thinking Goldman Sachs is the greatest, most prestigious institution a smart young undergrad could possibly join after graduation. And th th that's literally the thinking, you know, people come to me, oh, should I go to McKinsey or should I go work at Microsoft? You know, I'm, I trained in software engineering. Microsoft makes more sense to me, you know, but McKinsey is just so prestigious and I might not get this chance if I don't take this job right out of undergrad. You know, I might have to go to business school to, to get an opportunity like this ever again. And, you know, those people go and work for McKinsey and then they realize, wait, this, this work sucks. I'm making spreadsheets. What am I doing here? The CIA used to recruit from Yale all the time. Yale used to be this giant hotbed of CIA recruits. I don't know anybody at Yale, except for me. Um, but then I didn't want to go move to Virginia. And also, I'm, I was born in Moscow, so that might be a bit of a problem. <laughs> but I don't know a single person who was excited about joining the CIA anymore. Yeah, it's almost like uh, a gaslighting of a sort, right? Um, the pressure, and yeah, do you think that this sort of pressure uh, created by the funnel is intentional? Or is it just useful, but it's something that it happens because of the, the power dynamics involved? I have a bunch of hypotheses about this. Uh, I don't think it's intentional. I think it's well-meaning people sort of letting their guard down and losing hold of the reins. One part of it is Yale is 10% international students. Those people need visas. Those people need a tech job. And those people need um, a, a job at a really big company to, to actually apply to those visas because a startup can't apply for a visa. So they're constantly talking about you know wanting to work for a consulting firm or wanting to work at a tech company because they actually need to. The other thing is, I think there was this cultural idea that people should be given more agency over their lives and that people shouldn't be told what to do. And I think that has some good sen sentiments, but, but went a little bit overboard. I know, Isaac, you're someone who wants to actually work on figuring out um, the dynamics of superpower conflict. I I'm interested to hear, you know, n n not in terms of who in particular you've talked to, but there is some list of um, national or private organizations that probably would come to your mind that it would be most useful to do that kind of work in. Do you think you know who the right people are? And do you think that you have a viable path of talking to those people through the official communication structures in the Ivy League? Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, the um, 
I don't think the problem is that the sort of elite universities are no longer really effectively intertwined with like the governing structure. Um, I mean, yeah, maybe like less people want to go to the CIA now, but there's still, you know, like, yes, there is this careerist turn, but it's sort of, um, I think, you know, the, the larger problem is sort of the collapse of um, sort of private and public spheres of, of sort of like ambition into one another. Um, I think like, you know, there's this sort of vague notion of professional advancement um, that's very like prior to, you know, what you want your, your purpose in life to be. And, you know, in terms of like, you know, social mores, um, you know, like speech codes, cultural signals, you know, all of these sort of meritocratic ladders have, you know, it feels like really collapsed into one where the elite has kind of consolidated into like going back and forth between like the NGO circuit, um, you know, the, the sort of lobbying revolving doors, you know, and, you know, including the state, right? Like, you know, the, the civil service bureaucracy. I think um, it's it's not really a problem of, of connections per se. I think one of the reasons why it's so maddening and like difficult to me is that it's a, the problem is on like a much more meta level of like we need to sort of um, like the highest impact thing you can do is turning this um, you know whole meta structure around and and you know like implementing broader state coordination but that project almost shuts you out of of going you know the traditional pathways so it's sort of like a catch twenty two I think for like a true like reformist minded like elite student. Do you think that the public um, formal state institutions are the most worth looking at for you or the private sector? I honestly think that perversely, if you want to be like really civic minded right now, you have to circumvent and join some sort of like alternative reformist infrastructure. Like, I, I don't know how possible it is to really have an impact within the the state itself right now. I, I could be wrong. These things you know, are still opaque to me. But yeah, I mean, that's where I'm at. I mean, put it this way, right? I know people who've literally ended up who, who, who really should have been actively getting recruited by civil service or foreign service, you know, any of these kinds of institutions in, in different Western countries. And like they end up working in crazy private sector stuff going into Central America or doing startups in Shanghai or tr trying to build transport companies that can transport goods through hostile regions of the world where there's risks of piracy. And there's almost, if you look at the great classes of American society, you know, post-Civil War, post-World War II, they're all people who got to know each other and got tested in very high stress and high pressure environments, but that were also politically important. I wonder if there's not something to be said for just taking the top 10% of graduates and throwing them into crazy startups on the other side of the world for 10 years. And then after all this is done, recruit the best into the state institutions. And maybe that trial by fire ends up doing more than just, you know, doing a PhD uh, in a languages program. Somewhere. That sounds awesome. You're describing Ender's Game, and that sounds awesome. And it's something I've been thinking about a lot recently, um, because we're talking about all of these like failures of institutions, and then you think, okay, like what would actually be cool? I have my first idea was why don't was to require a gap year after high school, just for people to work 
or do something. And the counter argument to this has always been, well, you know, rich people have opportunities to, you know, do fancier stuff. And I say, okay, that, that doesn't really matter because the rich people have fancier opportunities after college. Also, you know, they've already gotten into college. This is just for their own personal growth. And the other uh, thing is, well, you know, the poor people might have no place to go. And it's like, okay, the, the people who come from really bad families and actually have no place to go, we could help them find a job. But also, yet again, there's this idea that college is the great equalizer and will just make everyone's problems go away. And it's like, no, the poor people who got into Yale, after Yale, they're still poor and they still have to get a job. And just like, I love this idea of even more testing and even more trial by fire because that does just open up opportunities for people. Yeah, I think there's a lot of discussion about meritocracy um, in these institutions, but the thing is that this meritocracy is often in terms of test scores, right? And the thing with test scores is that people just end up studying for tests. Everyone can figure that out. Once a test has existed for two or three years, you have all the, the testing consultants and whatever, uh, or, or tutors who are training you how to take this thing. And so even a test that probably worked really well the first time it was ever given, by the 10th iteration is no longer getting the people who you're trying to get. And so you could you could think of a version of, say, the Teal Fellowships, where you get money to do a startup in some strategically important country for a year, for two years. And if you're successful, you basically get uh, tracked into some kind of graduate program for free. And when you finish that program, you enter uh, the state or like the civil service. The, the, the key thing here is that you're trying to find the sort of people who actually have knowledge and have risk tolerance. And then after that, you have to figure out these succession problems. Right. I mean, one of these like, you know, interesting things with what you should be doing with like these elites that you form after they graduate, um, you know, it's 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 pretty touchy in that, like, like I'm generally for, you know, like, yeah, I think we, we should be, you know, doing insane things. And like, you know, you should be um, giving people some ridiculous experiences in, in you know, some type of governance or, or, you know, what have you. But at the same time, I mean, you know, there is this really biting aversion within the elite class to like doing any anything sort of insane and sort of um, that, you know, is maybe less stable than like being a consultant for Deloitte. And, you know, a lot of it, I think, does come from a valid sort of moral fear of power, right? Because people think, you know, of like adventure, they think, okay, well, we're just going to be like the British East India Company, like they're going to send us all off to, you know, move opium somewhere. And, you know, I think we really have to work on creating some sort of better like pro-social edifice where like, no, like, you know, you're going to send elites, you know, you're not going to send them to, you know, try to overthrow the Venezuelan regime. You know, what you're going to do is like, you know, assign them to like, here, we're going to do a massive hospital building, you know, project on like a Navajo reservation. We're going to do like, you know, urban, you know, renewal of like blighted sort of post-industrial centers. But I think in general, like there needs to be that sort of cultural renaissance. So the thing is that this kind of volunteer work has been part of applications for years and years now. And I'm sure that when it was first put in, um, the idea was that this is what they were trying to do, show select for people who did projects like this. But we all know that this has been completely gamed as well now. 
you, you just do a volunteerism trip if you have the money for it, and then you can put that on your application. Or maybe you just lie about it, right? You 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 do five hours of you know stacking bricks or something, and then you can dress it up as how you help lead this NGO in a dramatic building project somewhere. So I understand why this was brought in, and it seemed like they were trying to do something extremely useful. But maybe it literally has to be a either a university led or a national service program or something like that. Oh yeah, I mean we need. I mean, I'm of the opinion anyway that we need a kind of like wholesale, like self-strengthening movement, like um, the Chinese, like the Qing Dynasty sort of failed to do um, in like the 1890s. Mm. You know, sort of like holistic approach to like you know national sort of uh, like improvement and and also sort of like coherent and like moderate foreign policy. I'm curious how changing college admissions criteria will trickle down into changing the culture at large, because. You look at these criteria, and it's what is it? It's the A- the SATs or the SATs, and um, some essays. And uh, a lot of the top colleges actually have a strikingly non-existent essay criteria. Harvard has, I think, one main essay and then one optional essay. I think they may be added another essay this year. U Chicago has very creative essays, so it's. The standardized tests, your GPA from school, your essays, and probably the most relevant one is if you have really awesome letters of recommendation. That's something you can't really fake if a lot of people just really, really like you and want to move you forward. But I am curious how if you change those goalposts just a little bit, I'm wondering if it will have a massive effect on what all of these high school and middle and even middle school students are striving for. Yeah, it certainly optimizes for people who are like very good at manipulating narrative and like it's certainly like pretty like divorced from like doing actual things. It's interesting to see like how that sort of has knock-on effects of like oh yeah, the, the sort of like Ivy League people, you know, basically just select into like kind of meaningless knowledge work and like HR. But yeah, it's it's the broader question of like are the people that we're selecting like actually elites? Like, is this like method of like the formation of an elite class, like, is it even effective anymore? Yeah, well, I think uh, it basically gets us to the question of whether the application system as we think about it is actually the process by which universities are trying to select elites. We and the universities themselves generally present these various tests, you know, any metric that is given whether it be strictly test-based or whether it be this expanded, you know, volunteer experience and so on. These are always given in the language that they're trying to be more meritocratic and take account of different life experiences and so on. But we know that networks and structures of governance generally run on a lot of knowledge that can't just be taught via test or curriculum. It can only be learned, right? There's a process. You, You won't really know how to manage a department that's working with China or with Europe until you've worked with people who can introduce you to the right people, to the right networks, who can help you to understand the norms of interaction that exist between them. And that's not something that can be learned on a test. And so there's a read you can give of this kind of meritocracy by test score where the actual thing that is going on 
is meritocracy being used to legitimate these more entrenched institutions rather than actually trying to find new people for those institutions? I wanted to maybe introduce this contrarian reading of the situation and hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, I mean, the it's interesting to see like Christopher Lash sort of uh, in The Revolt of the Elites, he writes, he notes um, in about like 1940, there was an essay written by the um, president of Harvard at the time. And he sort of made the claim that the, the Jeffersonian ideal of like a, you know, very egalitarian classless society of like freeholders was was dead. And now that um, the frontier was closed and the class structure of, you know, America had had ossified into the point where there was a thoroughly like real working class that was a thing. The purpose of the university with the closing of the frontier was to sort of allow for the circulation of elites, basically. So um, the cynical reading of that is it's it's not a true like democratization of like competence, you know, to allow for the sort of like free circulation of the elite, but it's really just a sort of legitimating mechanism for whatever professional elite can can best take advantage of the sort of meritocratic like machinery. Yeah, well, the claim here would basically be that for someone who is not already born into an elite context to join an elite, what usually has to happen is that they learn these softer forms of knowledge that are, are more network based and perhaps more hidden in some ways. Uh, and certainly this happens, you know, someone like Kissinger came to the U.S. and managed to become one of the most politically powerful individuals in the American system. But he didn't do that by passing test scores. He did that by finding the right networks and learning from the right people. And so, you know, N Natalia, I think you were talking earlier about how on even an emotional level, students get stressed and depressed because they're given responsibilities without ever having been integrated into the the knowledge and skill sets that would let them use that responsibly. Do you think that that's partially because they assume that because they've gotten in, they should already be able to do these things? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think this is a bit off, off the topic, but this is most clear in the STEM majors at Yale because there's this thing where not everybody who gets into Yale can complete every degree at Yale within the appropriate time period and within the appropriate, you know, strain to your personal life and, and strain to your psyche. A person who goes to Yale and has never done any math in high school beyond, you know, AP Calc, that person is completely unprepared to do the math major at Yale because that's a hard major. It's meant for people who got into Yale based on their math ability, who have done really well on, you know, national math competitions and things like that. So if you go to Yale and you just decide on the whim, I'm going to try to do a math major, you're going to have you're not just going to have a bad time you're going to do you're going to have a really bad time and the place where this is most evident is in the computer science major because a lot of people who've never done computer science in high school now want to get it as a degree because that's where the jobs are and so they go to Yale and they realize wait there is a lot of math in this the problem sets are really hard. 
I'm working 60 hours a week on, you know, this one class alone and I'm failing. And a lot of people who are Yale students um, just can't complete their CS, can't, can't complete a, their STEM major of choice and end up dropping out. And it's actually really, really sad. And so that's a very concrete metaphor for, for this phenomenon of um, people, people do expect that you have met some sort of bar and now you have these certain responsibilities. And it's also evident after graduation. It's like, oh, you're a person with a Yale degree. I have certain expectations of you. Um, you know, you're organized, you're competent, you have these social skills. And then when you stray from that, they give you this really funny look of what the hell, you're a Yale grad. I guess to be clear, like, are, are you claiming that there are people who end up dropping out of Yale STEM programs who by all accounts and purposes should be should be in there? Like they're actually good at it and for some reason the pressure is pushing them out or they, the, the fact that they were not prepared properly for them is putting them at a disadvantage? Yeah, so the classes don't start at level zero. They start at maybe, you know, level five. Whereas if you go to a state school, they would start at level zero. Um, you would go in and they would teach you the basics and they would build up from there. Whereas at Yale, it just starts at a much higher level and then it ends at a higher level. Yeah, I, I think that probably the mechanism here, because there are probably schools you can go to that give uh, private schools, right? That, that give a better education and prepare people better. And so the trade-off is something like, on the one hand, there may be people who are on a basic skills level. If they had the right training, they would be able to add value to to the country, to these, these networks of power. But they are being missed because they go to a school that doesn't prepare them. They go into the program. They can't handle it. They drop out. So if we're trying to address this question of, how can you find the best people who should be getting these opportunities? It seems like the mechanism is something like find better ways for masters in different fields to find apprentices rather than just get people into uh, a degree curriculum. Like, do you think that there's something here? Hey, Isaac, if you'd like to jump in. Yeah, I mean, I think the problem with a lot of these sort of like elite selection dynamics is that the university has like had to take on a sort of larger and larger societal role as like you know a lot of the broader like functions of like American society have broken down like over the you know later half of the 20th century you know there's this debate to like you know these universities should like adopt like ways to get more like lower income students in you know have like preferential selection for them and it's like all of this all of this is is true and I think morally valid but at the same time you have to step back and say okay, like a lot of this stuff is the result of a deeply non-functional state and the sort of, in a perfect world, you would have fairly egalitarian society where state guarantees a sort of like bare level, you know, it keeps people out of like abject misery. And in that sense, you know, elites would rise more naturally and and you, you wouldn't have to have this like formal formation and selection mechanism if a sort of stronger intellectual society was able to attract willing students to, um, practitioners and masters in the field, kind of like how universities sort of sprang up in the first place in like 11th century Europe. It was basically a guild of students would voluntarily sort of gather around a well-respected master and then they would 
you know, basically unionize themselves and sort of institutionalize it in that way. I think it's a, a deeply broken method to say that, you know, well, first we have to select and, and form some um, elite before we really like get them going in, in, in society, because at that point you've already sort of created this, you know, immense disconnect from like the broader class structure and probably, you know, notions of broader societal good. Yeah. So like you've institutionalized a base of people without reference to the actual things that they should be doing to be worthy of this position of opportunity and power and influence, so, something like that. Right. One of the chief sort of effects of the institutionalization of the professional elite around the, the research university is the separation of knowledge from practical experience. You know, the sort of unification of those two is, in my view, you know, probably the, the hallmark of like a really sort of healthy and like virtuous society. Let's talk about fraternity type organizations, because traditionally, at, at least for the, the major ones, say the, the tier one of fraternities, sororities, uh, and their equivalents, it seemed like the intention was to create this kind of network of mentorship. Do you think, uh, and either one of you can jump in here, do you think they still play this role? From my experience, it doesn't, it doesn't really seem like it. I mean, culturally, I think they're, they're very much sort of no longer high status. Um, on elite campuses. Even the sort of secret societies at Yale um, are kind of charitably kind of viewed as like lame in a way, a sort of like another vehicle of yeah. like professional resume building. Um, but combination of cultural things, I don't think it's particularly relevant anymore. Well, you get like skull and bones in societies like this that have this reputation bordering on conspiracy um, in parts of the popular culture. And I, I would be fascinated to know how many people come and examine Skull and Bones because they, they've bought the, the hype of the conspiracy culture and want to get in on it and then look at it and decide, wow, this is what's behind the smokescreen. Yeah, there's other places to get cocaine now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Natalia, I, I know you. we've chatted before about these kinds of organizations. Oh, I don't remember what I said. I know several people who've gotten into Skull and Bones who have turned it down. And they turned it down because it took up a lot of time. I think you had to, for the secret societies, you have to give up your Thursday and your Sunday night every week in your senior year. And uh, I know some people, there is still that grand lore around it. And there are people who are like, it's kind of exciting when like, oh, wow, you got into Skull and Bones. What did they actually do? And then they, they tell you some stories and it's still pretty cool but it doesn't really feel like they are it, it doesn't feel like they're ruling the world just because there there are so many more actually powerful cartels of elites that are ruling the world so skull and bone seems like a pretty very minor cartel compared to those other really big players yeah and i mean like to talk about skull and bones let's think about this here founded in 1832 this institution is older than the civil war an institution that's older than the Civil War probably lasted so long because it was doing something. And the, the names in here, uh, Prescott Bush, George Herbert Walker Bush, there's a lot of names that have gone through Skull and Bones. And yet, it seems like now, the, the revealed preference, let's say, of students is that whatever this organization was doing, it is no longer doing. So what do you think the value of it was? Was it just the mentorship? Was it doing something more? A lot of this speaks to the 
broader like disenchantment that sort of afflicts professional elites now i think it's it's like a double pronged thing right on the one hand there's this sort of reflexive aversion to to power and like coming from you know a very understandable place of a lot of moral failures um and on the other hand there is this you know kind of feeling of like things are i mean to put it you know for lack of a better word like things are have kind of gotten lame everyone you know at this point you know, after a couple of years of being a Yale student, you sort of are used to having a parade of, you know, really elite speakers coming through. And there's just, you know, maybe this is highly subjective, but there just seems to me this sort of feeling of kind of listlessness and like ennui where it's like, you know, why would you want to be in, you know, some esoteric secret cabal? Like, aren't we all just going to end up at McKinsey anyway? You know, that's a really interesting point. If there's this bottleneck now, into the institutions people are getting into. Part of the reason that people might want to join and give up so much time for a group is one, there's this ritual aspect. Humans are ritual, a ritual species. We, we need society, we need social approval, we want to feel like we're part of a group, and ritual gives structure and meaning to people's lives. And if you, if all you have as a connection with a person is that you both gave up two days a week for your entire senior year and you both went through the same rituals and like went through the same hazing process you automatically have this level of trust built up between the two of you that uh even if everything else in your life is a difference that thing will unite you in a strong way but if everyone ends up in the same places you really don't need to rely on people or that kind of trust as much yeah it's it's really interesting how the sort of lack of a broader purpose and even like a broader sort of visible structure in which to inject meaning a lot of these kind of seemingly you know frivolous sort of like markers of, of meaning just kind of don't happen anymore you know I, I remember thinking like on campus like this semester there were some some of those strange like you know those buses that people are, are like they they uh they like pedal them like and drink beer at the same time on the back of a trailer there would be those you know full of like millennials postgrads like kind of biking around through campus and i remember fantasizing like you know this this sounds like exactly like something skull and bones would do like in in the mm -hmm. past is like they would maybe like put on some robes and like throw eggs at these like really obnoxious like millennials drinking beer because like it's really annoying but the the absurdity of that thought on its face where you know i was like well nobody would be willing to do that anymore like people would be too bored or scared it's like a lot of these sort of small facets of like campus life has just disappeared and it's, it's very telling in that way yeah well and even the institutionalized rivalries uh, i did something i even remember from my own undergrad and there there were a lot of things on campus that were you know not necessarily legal um, but areas one would go exploring that, you know, people were trespassing. Basically, almost initiations, right? When you, when you came in with your your group of peers, these, these were things you did together. It's like when kids, you know, drop acid for the first time or whatever it is. And there were rivalries between different faculties. But one by one, these things were cracked down on. And even the classic faculty rivalries, I remember were things like pulling pranks on each other or ritualized vandalism or something like that. These things were one by one cracked down on to the point where there are just a few of them left now. And it's it's kind of like, I don't want to say it was just that people got scared of risk and lawsuit and this kind of thing. It seems to be more than that. 
there there seems to have been this idea that there was something inherently exclusionary about that kind of ritualized in-group and the give and takes that is, came with them. But then by shutting them all down, what ended up happening was that the tools for creating community and meaning in the experience of going through the universities were pretty much deconstructed. Yeah, and, and, and what fills its place, right? It's like this massive sort of therapeutic bureaucracy that ends up outsourcing all of the, you know, the psychological like harm that was originally sort of dealt with and like embedded structures of, you know, friendship and ritual and meaning and, and everything is like sort of depersonalized. Um, and you get this sort of, you know, it, it is weird, like almost paradoxical to think that, you know, in a time when on its face, the university does not seem to have any sort of telos or action. It is actually the most regulated in terms of student life that it's ever been. You know, there's this massive edifice now of like sort of therapeutic and behavioral interventions and things like that aimed to, you know, create some very specific interpersonal environment. But like at the end of the day, for what? And, and you know, that question is, is not answered. I mean, I'd be interested to hear from both of you. What Was there any remnant that you came across of a ritual and meaning creation left or was it something you couldn't find anywhere on campus uh in your experience natalia maybe you can start with you i've definitely found it um but the places where i found it were the more kind of like esoteric philosophical clubs where it would be people who are bonding because of their desire to have ritual at community um, for example, the parties in the Yale Political Union, some of those parties had those ritualistic elements of you have to be, you have to go through this crazy ritual to be let in. And once you're in, you know, you have to come into the Yale Political Union and vote for your guys to get the leadership positions. And, you know, there's an alumni network. And all of those things were there. They weren't created around having a nexus of power. They were created around a desire to have philosophical conversations with each other. Um, so it's like, so, so the vetting procedures would be, let's get, you know, really thoughtful people who a bunch of the existing members already like, and let's, let's induct them in and give them booze and throw really awesome parties. And that's going to be our, our thing. And we're gonna have songbooks and sing in the streets on, you know, Tuesday nights. We're just gonna go and, you know, sing our special songs and, you know, wearing suits. And maybe people will look at us and think, wow, that's that, that, that that's a cabal over there. Um, but I think the thing that made those interesting was that they were rooted around, if not quite a cause, then at least some sort of philosophical mission. Something that like sublimates, you know, everyone's naked will to power, right? Yeah, I was, so I was in one of those clubs and I was also in a sorority and the dynamics there were quite different. Um, it took me a very long time to figure out what the sorority was for and what was going on there. And it was after graduation that I realized, oh, a lot of this was power plays and a lot of it was a will, will to will to power dynamics that you just expressed. Isaac, what about you? Like, did you find any of these ritual remnants? There certainly are. Like Natalia mentioned, the sort of political parties will still kind of 
you know, drink from the same cup that they've had since the 50s or something like that. But I mean, they're very sort of like niche and, and they're, they're certainly designed to be niche, um, but it's very, you know, pushed aside in terms of like the dominant sort of culture on campus, which is kind of professional striving, some vague notion of like meritocratic advancement and um, window dressing over like all that really remains, which is kind of people's you know, status anxiety and like will to power. Yeah, there's this thing that happens with the striver mentality where all risk is essentially placed on one vector. And what I mean by that is in your life, the main risk is whether or not you're going to get the job or whether or not you're going to pass the exam. And so it seems like all the existential pressure and angst that you have the capacity to generate sort of gets focused on this one point. And a contrast that with, you know, there were these institutions in the German universities called the Burschenschaften in the 19th and 20th century. Some of them still exist. But one of the things they were famous for was dueling and fencing with uh, proper swords. And it was considered a mark of honor if you had scars on your face. And there's all these photos you can find, you know, people with their heads bandaged up, people would lose eyes sometimes. It, on occasion, someone would even die doing this, trying to get the, the treasured scar on the face. But the thing that was happening there was that they were now introducing on purpose these different kinds of high risk into their lives. So in this case, physical risk of harm and maybe risks of losing honor because they fought badly in a duel. And I wonder if there's something to be said for the fact that when you remove all kinds of risk, except for like the striver risk, the, the least immediate but most psychologically heavy kind of risk, that you end up creating a greater mental burden in the long run. Yeah, and, and you know, it's the sort of perverse aspect of that is, you know, for people who are truly like extremely driven and, you know, can see the broader like, futility of these games you know they're they're selected against right it creates this like adverse selection where you know actual people with like you know pro-social motivations or like galactic ambition whichever of the two they're still like you know selected against in these like you know they, they really just can't bear like being in these like petty hierarchies i mean you know it goes all the way up to like if you look at mark zuckerberg like probably the you know the example people think of like a really ambitious college student i mean he concluded that the best thing he could do was to ignore everything that was going on in the sort of institutional, you know, life around him, lock himself in his dorm and eventually drop out, right? I mean, eventually there's just nothing to channel, you know, people's ambition. Insofar as there are people who enter the striver mindset, not because that's their natural inclination, but because that's all they see around them, the lack of disruption of that mindset, the, the, the sort of people I mentioned earlier who went and did high risk, crazy projects on their own, did it because they were so fed up with the opportunities that were all striver opportunities presented to them that they summed up the agency to go and fix that problem on their own. But I'm sure there's lots of people who, for whatever reason, they don't know how to do it or they they don't they need more of an opportunity presented to them. The value of having some ritualized mechanism of disrupting the striver mindset, the lack of that is extremely damaging, I would think. Like Natalia, I, I'd be interested to hear 
on this topic of risk, because uh, you have sort of mentioned before in some of your writing what really is behind discussions of safety on campuses. And I think it's probably not too interesting or useful to just rehash debates about safe spaces or whatever. I think one of the interesting things you did in your piece was like, okay, let's take these debates about free speech and safe space and all this kind of thing, and let's go behind them. Let's actually look at the conflicts in the class ethos of the institution that are going on here. And one of the things you talked about was how people from very wealthy or powerful backgrounds would present themselves as if they were broke or lower class. And you presented a thesis that maybe some of this is the inability to understand or be comfortable with handling the power or position that they were actually born into. And while it might seem very uh, egalitarian or democratic or however we want to term that, to disown that power, the thing is the power isn't actually disowned. It's still there. It's just now hidden and it's devoid of accountability or responsibility. I'd be interested to hear if you think there's some way that someone like that could be disrupted out of their discomfort. I think maybe a really nice smack in the face could <laughs> could help them oh, out. Boxing gloves. <laughs> That's the institutionalization. Yeah, um, and I'm not that I'm not that not serious. I think I think that's a I think some positive reinforcement definitely. People are so thirsty for feedback, any kind of feedback. We're in these like isolated little silos and nobody has a master and you know you you were mentioning before like we go through Yale and not a, there's not a single person you know you have all these professors you have all of these deans you have the head of college you have we, we had something called a master and a dean I don't I can't think of a single person who was like Natalia here are your skills and this is how we turn you into a productive person. Not a single person. So people are so thirsty for feedback. And that includes really, really rich people. You know, that includes really, really poor people. And it includes really, really rich people. You know, for someone to say, you know, what the hell? You just spent 20 grand renting out a restaurant and throwing a birthday party? $20,000. That's insane. That's an insane amount of money. You could do so much. You could buy bubbles off of Amazon. Do you know how money bubbles $20,000 could buy? You could fill an entire courtyard. You could throw a bubble party for an entire residential college at Yale. You don't have that kind of feedback system where people go, yo, you spent all that money on a stupid thing. Here's a way cooler thing you could have spent it on. And the other piece of feedback that's missing is the feedback from the actually poor people. You know, growing up in, you know, Endicott, New York, the rich people were cool. The rich people had swimming pools. You wanted to be friends with the rich people. You know, they threw parties. They threw, you know, awesome spaghetti pasta dinners for the sports teams. And the community gathered around that and was like, you're cool for doing this. And, you know, we don't have that anymore. We have this isol- we have this isolation where being too rich is too dangerous. And 
there's there was a cohort of people at Yale who who were completely 100% aware of this power and they knew how to handle it and they knew they were getting you know a several hundred million dollar inheritance or a billion dollar inheritance and they were actual targets and they actually had bodyguards so they're kind of in a league of their own where they do have that dynastic mindset but I don't think those are the people we're talking about. We're talking about those people, you know, whose parents have $20 million, where it's not really a dynasty, where you're just hanging around and you know you don't really have to work, but you have to, like, do something with yourself and you're kind of embarrassed that you don't have to work as hard as other people because, you know, there's this whole Protestant ethic that is really valued. And, and we don't have people telling them, like, look, this is a cool thing you could do. If you do this, everyone will cheer you on. It's right now, it's just like every every single person is just getting bashed over the head in a bad way versus being slapped in the face in a good way to, to wake him up. Yeah, there seems to be a kind of parallel here um, between the lack of ownership over the educational institutions and the lack of ownership of succession within a lot of these families. Because on, on the surface, I can see a an objection here where, well, but if we just have that kind of succession, that ownership over networks of power or of wealth just keeps them from being used for the greater good in some sense. And I think this is this is probably true to a degree. But I the thing that's happening here is not that this wealth is somehow being appropriated by someone who is using it for something more beneficial for the whole country, right? It's it's not as if this wealth is being channeled toward building rockets or toward, you know, curing different forms of cancer or, or anything like this. There's a lot of nonprofits and a lot of them just kind of exist as tools for uh, escaping taxes or you have a lot of money put into networks whose goal is to safeguard the rest of your money. Uh, in the Cayman Islands or whatever it is. But that is worse than having someone who can take control of wealth that exists and invest it in something that's beneficial for the whole and that downstream does a lot more. And I'm not saying this in a trickle-down sort of way. Um, I, I think that very often... Uh, in that basic read of this where it's just job creation or whatever. This doesn't actually happen. The the actual incentive to do risky investment that is highly beneficial if it pays off doesn't occur, which is why very often the public sector has stepped in on the business side. But on the educational side, taking people who either have wealth or are placed in charge of wealth, public or private, and giving them an ethos and a network and a set of or a system of institutional knowledge where they know how to build something into a dynasty and i'm using that in the broadest possible sense of the word that's something that doesn't seem like it exists in america and maybe it existed in the past maybe we just didn't formally think of those institutions as doing that but from this discussion, it seems like the institutions which most immediately would be responsible for that, the top universities, it's not just that they aren't doing it, but they don't even realize that this is a failing. Right. I mean, it's, you know, you can even kind of 
see it like as a student yourself on campus where you know what the elite university does is it selects this, this class of it skews you know heavily sort of privileged you know there's no there's no way around that um and then they also kind of uh select lower income kids so you know you get this balancing act where how do you balance a campus where there are you know kids from like a broken home somewhere who's like the first in her family ever to go to college with like at the same time sort of nudging like these oligarchic scions of families from the Hamptons to like do something with their wealth. I mean, it's such like an intractable problem that, you know, the university doesn't even begin to acknowledge in its like uh, in the way in which it sort of like treats its students. I mean, there's no sort of acknowledgement of like like these highly uncomfortable class dynamics just totally go under said and then you end up getting this, you know, environment where everyone's kind of, you know, sort of directionless. I watched um, this documentary recently on the remaining families of British Dukes. And an interesting thing in these families, and there aren't very many of them, there are less Dukes than there are aristocrats overall in the UK. But a lot of these families, basically, you know, either members of the family gave up stewarding the, the manners, the lands, the social institutions of which there are a number that these families used to run. Almost all of these families, uh, as far as I could tell, no longer possess the expertise or the wisdom or the knowledge of how to steward these things. And so where that wealth hasn't just disappeared or evaporated or been sold off, you know, where these these duchies, these families still have actual wealth they're sitting on, it's often put in trusts and it's given to managers. And, you know, maybe the manors become tourist attractions or the lands get used for some other purpose. And that to me is probably the second least worst solution. Just selling it off and the wealth disappearing is probably the worst solution. But simply managing it as if it's a museum seems almost as bad in the sense that all of this was created, these institutions were created because they served some social purpose. And you, you know, on a very surface level, one could see that if there's the last scion of some wealthy family and they have no idea what to do with their wealth, maybe it would be better to place it under the stewardship of some upwardly mobile, highly talented person who worked their way up from the bottom. You know, th this happens in various ways already. But the thing is, the the sort of selection process for that to happen requires taking people and educating them in how that wealth was stewarded in the past. And then the innovation that has to occur is how that wealth can be properly stewarded today in a long-term way toward the future. And that, to me, is the thing that the meritocracy discussion misses out on. I think, Isaac, this relates to what you were saying about how it's not very useful to pre-select an elite on a metric that doesn't actually end up with people who can do anything useful. The selection process has to be directed toward the actual function that they need to play in the society. Yeah, it's, it's this sort of like sleight of hand that the meritocratic story tells where it's, it's just, you know, basically a way to legitimate the sort of long-term accumulation of wealth without a concomitant, like, long-termist mindset. Um, and so, you know, you sort of get, like, these dynamics where, you know, you, you can see the oligarchs on campus, like, they, they, they try to hide, but 
it's, you know, you see people's Instagram stories and like, you know, they're flying off to like London for the weekend or something. Um, but you're, it's still like, you still walk on eggshells around those people, right? Like you don't, you don't really treat them as if like they, they have any, any type of like responsibility or like why they're here as opposed to like somebody else. It's sort of all just sort of schizophrenically like ignored. Probably one of the useful things about Skull and Bones was that you took kids who had never had to face any adversity in their lives and put them through brutal hazing rituals, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, especially in the sense that like, like right now, I mean, the, the, the sort of only experience that you can get similar to that is like, well, I guess you can't get one. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe, maybe someone in the Bay Area has an idea for how to disrupt Skull and Bones. I'm looking at the time we've been discussing for a while. There's a topic I do want to touch on before we wrap up, and that's the future of the universities. Uh, I think there's this very fashionable thesis in some quarters that the universities have reached the end of their lifespan because of distance education or because of some kind of disruption or maybe because people just say the political culture is so bad now at universities that no one... Uh, really talented will go there. For whatever reason, they have no future. Yale won't exist in 2050 or in 2100 or at some date. I'm interested to hear what you guys think of this thesis. I think technology will probably centralize. Um, there may be some sort of like on the on the margin, uh, like a mass sort of failure of a lot of existing lower tier universities like they might all go belly up um but i don't think there's going to be some type of like decentralizing revolution with sort of digital tech i mean it would have happened already if like the technology is there i think what we'll probably see is yale and and places like it um partnering with like existing uh, sort of technology conglomerates to kind of merge um the existing like technical infrastructure with like the the real sort of uh visible you know centers of power that already, you know, legibly exist, like the Ivy League. Mm -hmm. Do you think the pandemic will accelerate that? Yeah, I mean, I think there may be a sort of perverse dynamic post-pandemic where um, there is more of a premium placed on um, in-person education. So, you know, e even the most like technologically sort of um, centralized elite universities will still try to really, you know, emphasize like a return to normal on campus. But yeah, I think sort of hopes of like the the death of the university and like the sort of disappearance of the Ivy League are overblown. So has Yale um, given a statement already at this point on whether they're bringing people back in the fall or are they doing online courses? Um, in sort of characteristic fashion, they told us they convened six committees and would get back to us in July. So Okay, fantastic. That's surprising. I know a lot of other universities had already made the call surprisingly early, to be honest given how late they left clearing the campuses out. We'll do what Harvard does, I think, is is how it usually works. I see. But, yeah. Natalia, why don't we have you jump in here? I'm not really sure. Um, on the one hand, I, I've started to see, see more and more of hyper-specialization of degrees. Um, I think what's going to happen is people are going to start being less impressed, like, oh, you went to Duke, oh, you went to Cornell oh, you went to Yale and studied English. I think people will start, I have a suspicion because I've already seen people do this already. It's like, oh, you have a double degree in broadcasting and you know musical production because you want to be a producer. 
and these like really really and and the Ivy League schools traditionally don't have any degrees like that you know they have psychology chemistry biology English math they don't have much more niche things than that but I think those really niche degrees that give you like direct access to job skills are going to be more popular whereas being at a big name school with a more generic degree is going to become less popular but that being said Yale has so much money so much money and for example Stephen Schwartzman just recently gave a very very large donation to build the Schwartzman Center and he started something called the Schwartzman Scholarship where which is supposed to be the equivalent of the Rhodes Scholarship, but sending people to China to study um, the Chinese culture and Chinese business practices. And so they are doing interesting, innovative things like that. So I'm not actually sure what the future will be there. Yeah, well, the strength of the big universities has always been that they have an institutional momentum. They're able to continually get buy-in from uh, wealthy people, from institutions, even abroad, right? Anyone in China who wants to give their kid a Western education is going to try and send them to Harvard. There there are people, and I've seen this, people who will do a, a single course at Harvard and not a degree, but then they'll be able to build themselves in China as having attended Harvard. And this gives them a massive boost uh, in, in networking and trying to find jobs. I was talking with someone once in finance, and he described to me how in the banking sector after the financial crisis in 2008, there were a lot of big banks that recovered, and there were other very small banks offering niche services that kept going. But the midsize died. You know, this the middle hollowed out, and you were left with this barbell model of either you're a huge bank with huge amounts of financial capital or you're a tiny bank but you're doing something so niche that the big banks won't do it and my thesis here is that uh, a similar thing will happen with the universities there are little colleges say religious colleges or liberal arts colleges that attract a very particular niche of student and there are the universities like yale and harvard that are so politically and socially and economically powerful that they'll continue to grant status. And and I think that that is an important of this thing here, granting status. Uh, Seth Largo had done a great piece for us um, on this topic. But that middle sector, the the mid-size school or, or state school or university that is trying to attract people just in the Southwest, it's very difficult for me to see how it can survive that kind of disruption. I, th- I tend to agree with that. I, I think it could be a perfect time to sort of invest in some type of large-scale alternative technical or vocational schools. Um, but I'm a little pessimistic on the capacity and political will for things like that anymore. Yeah, the vocations thing is interesting. I think there probably is some segment of person who's currently attending or trying to get an undergrad degree, say in business, maybe certain kinds of nursing or veterinary school, where you can probably outsource that to professional colleges. However, I don't see that disrupting what the top universities are at their core. Um, And let's dig into the status granting thing. If you're an academic, no matter what kind of work you're doing, and you get a research seat at Yale or at Harvard or at Stanford, you have now become legitimate. 
and there's no amount of outsourcing courses or moving them online that is going to be changing that fact. And I think that hits at the heart of why those institutions can survive. Because till now, we have not found anyone who can disrupt the ability of the Ivy Leagues to grant status to knowledge, to people, and to social norms even, right? What happens in the universities, a society 10 years later? Like, I'd be interested to hear if you guys see anyone who can contest that or disrupt that. Yeah, I think you're definitely right. And it's kind of scary. It's it's kind of like you've really put into perspective the the stakes here of if these institutions are screwing things up or if these institutions are systematically elevating the wrong kinds of people or the wrong kinds of ideas. That's that's playing really hard high stakes there. Yeah, it is interesting to see like despite the fact that like the meme is definitely in the water at this point that like oh like you know these places are decayed and we have to sort of like you know escape them but i mean if you look at like i mean something like the teal fellowship which is probably the closest analog to like some type of alternative credentialing mechanism that i can think of i mean it's good for like 500 followers on twitter but you know it has not really displaced the value of like the ba you know like you you would still definitely want i think like all things being equal i would rather have like a BA from Yale or Harvard than, you know, be a Teal Fellow just in broader sort of American society. I think like, I also think that any sort of innovative alternative credentialing mechanism may succeed initially just because of the fact that there's so many like dead players in higher ed right now. But higher ed also has shown a sort of like a potent ability to sort of assimilate existing trends. The The main effect of digital has not been to sort of create this like alternative sort of like online agora of voluntarily you know exchanging professors and students it's mostly just served as another way for universities to to monetize so i think i am pretty pessimistic in the short run at least about alternative credentialing um it's just a really devilish problem in that case uh maybe you can end on this note the universities seem to be here to stay at the you know these major centers we're talking about is there a way then that they can be fixed and that some of the mechanisms we talked about can be implemented? Because basically, it seems to me either they get fixed or they continue to decline, but no one disrupts them at all. And we just deal with this decline and maybe elites have to find some other way of finding people that is not as good or someone else people talk about Chinese universities and scholarship. I don't think they're anywhere near having the status granting abilities of Harvard and Yale yet, even within China itself. But 50 years in the future, who knows what becomes possible? Um, American universities managed to ultimately uh, compete with Oxford and Cambridge, although interestingly, not entirely entirely displaced them, right? Oxford and Cambridge are still in the top uh, few spots of universities people want to go to. But maybe we can imagine that in 2100 or 2200, Tsinghua or one of these other universities has managed to meet Harvard and Yale on an equal playing field. Let's make a bold prediction here. Which scenarios do you think that are most likely? So I think some sort of like long march through the institutions and direct reform is at this point infeasible. Um, My thesis is that it will have to be some sort of um, external, like cultural and intellectual revival, something like the Royal Society in the U.S. And you know, after 
probably a couple decades of work, it will be able to then kind of take over the university from outside, not formally, but just sort of like mimetically um, and, you know, through the sort of broader cultural sphere, be able to influence it like that. That's really like, you know, the only real opportunity that I see for like long term meaningful change. Um, one one incentive, you know, could be like you mentioned, the sort of rise of the Chinese educational sector. I mean, it's a little ironic. I was uh, planning on studying abroad at, at Tsinghua myself this summer. So there certainly is uh, competition there. But I think, um, I think that, the, you know, there is not a very strong imperative on the Ivy League to innovate, even in the case of like geopolitical competition, um, just because like the, the sort of embeddedness of like the internal like professional motives and like the profit um, accumulation is just too great to really like steer it from within. I have, I, I see two possible paths. Um, that I just came up with on the spot, so bear with me if they are very incomplete. The w- one path I see is Isaac's mimetic intellectual revival combined with um, mass mental health crisis on college campuses, combined with the fact that we have a mass psychology shortage. Uh, psychology is a very gate-kept field, in the same way that law and medicine are. A lot of people don't really know that. You need to, you know, get at least a master's degree. You need to get licensed in every single state. So it is is pretty well gatekept. And if the universities become very serious about handling the mental health crises on campuses, they will not be able to solve it by hiring psychologists because there are no non-working psychologists. Every person qualified to work as a psychologist in the United States already is and is already making a decent amount of money doing it. So they would have to get more creative and that might force them, if if they're being really creative, to come up with a better admittance system or to do something more creative with the students once they're admitted. Another possibility I see is, on paper, a very simple reform that people just aren't doing. Um, One of the main problems I see is that a four-year degree actually doesn't qualify you to do very many things. For example, um, I go to Yale, I get into the psychology program, I complete the psychology program, Uh, I'm not accepted in any master's program, I'm not accepted into any PhD program, and then of course, you know, those cost a lot of money, and so I'm not going to go do that because I just don't want to spend that amount of money, and so if colleges were to, uh, and a lot, and some colleges already are doing this, for example, Drexel has, has, um, is, is very unique in that it has five years programs, and it has mandatory work experience internships basically every semester, but either every other semester or every summer. So they have the system where after your five years, you have this like very um, valid qualification to do whatever your degree was in, you know, architecture or civil engineering or, or something like that. And so if a bunch of colleges change it so that they they create a they create a more degree more direct pathway from the time the, the exact time you were admitted to what you will be doing as work 
and not require the second admission for a master's. And and this is how colleges were done in Russia. Um, and my, my parents did this. You would get into college at the same age when you're 18 and you will be accepted into a five-year program. And by the time you finish, you are a sound engineer or you are a historian or you are whatever the thing you have is. And that takes that eliminates a lot of the mental burden and gets people into a disciplined mindset of this is the thing I'm going to be good at. This is the guild I'm in. This is the part of society I will be participating in in the future. And it gives people more of a stake. Because right now, people don't have a direction and people don't have a stake. And that creates this immense mental burden and everything ends up terrible. Basically, as you mentioned, Russia, you know, the Soviet education system uh, is interesting in that way. There were so many people educated in that system who ended up coming to Western countries or the U.S. And the problem there maybe in some ways was similar, right? And we consider this proof of the stagnancy of the Soviet system, that they had so many educated people who could not provide wealth to their society or value to their society in any way because everything was gatekept and done through bureaucracies. And yet we seem to now have a class of people like that as well. On that note, though, I know we've been going for a while, so we'll wrap it up there. Uh, obviously, all these topics we'd love to discuss further in future in pieces and on podcasts. That was Natalia Edition. Associate Editor, Palladium Magazine and Yale Graduate, and Isaac Wilkes, uh, Palladium Writer, Undergrad at Yale studying Political Science. Guys, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, Ash. Yeah, thanks so much. Cheers. Cheers.